All right, so uh, review. Each member of the Godhead is equal. Equally God, each is eternal God, each is fully God, each person is equal in essence as each possesses fully the identically same eternal divine nature, yet each is also an eternal and distinct personal expression of the one undivided nature. So the Son then, whoop, the Son then is fully God. Therefore, what distinguishes the Son is his particular role as Son in relation to the Father and the Spirit and the relationship that he has with each of them. So again, we're going to look at those roles and relationships in a minute here. And as a reminder, humanity is created in the image of God. We are to represent God. So understanding the Son's roles and relationships is crucial for us to fulfill uh, this purpose. So let's behold the Son. Now we're going to first do this by looking at his relationship to the Father, and then we're going to look at his relationship to the Spirit. But before we get there, um, we, we need to consider how great a Savior and Lord we have in the Son. So I, don't want, to, I want us to be thinking about this in this way. Um, I need you to throw out to me some world headlines on your news feed. What is the important news of the world today? What's that? What? COVID what? COVID-29, COVID-29, COVID, I've never heard of this, COVID-19, so yeah, COVID, so we, that's still, ah, that's still there, right, so COVID, yes, what else, what, 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 snow squall, yes, snow squall, that is another one that's been on our news feed recently, excellent, snow squall, most recent, what else is going on in the world? The Russian, Ukraine, Russia is on the border of Ukraine ready to invade, okay? What else? Canadian truckers. <laughs> Canadian truckers, they are parking. They have all decided to park at a bridge. Yes, anything else that's going on in the world that's kind of crazy? What? Anything? Church in China. Church in China, yes. What? <laughs> what? What is it? Oh, it's in Arkansas. Rodents? At, at, at um, Family Dollar. <laughs> okay, why am I doing this? Oh, yeah. So here's why I'm doing this. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, 19 through 23. So here's why I'm saying this. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Of course, that's speaking of the person of Jesus Christ. So it seems to be saying, just very quickly there reading that, it seems to be saying that the world is not spinning out of control, right? The world is, even though we're kind of seeing some things that want, make us wonder, is the world, is, is anybody in control of this, you know, this madhouse that we're, uh, that we're living in? So where is the sun? Where's the sun in light uh, of these things? What's it say there? What's he get? So read it again to yourself. What? Okay, so he's, one word was authority. What's another word? Dominion. What's another word? What? Power. Power. What's another word? Measurable what? 
Yeah, immeasurable greatness. Okay, immeasurable greatness. So, so, so here's the point. Jesus uh, raises up presidents, uh, prime ministers, dictators. He puts them down at his will. Jesus orders earthquakes, tsunamis, plagues, disasters, snow squalls. The one whose name is above every name who has conquered Satan, sin, and death now reigns. Okay, so he does reign, by the way. He reigns now from his heavenly seat at the right hand of his father, and his kingdom shall have no end. But further amazingly, I think, in this is that the son's main purpose in this era is to build the church. In fact, Christ reigns over the nations in order to accomplish his purpose of building the church. Uh, and we know that from Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says very clearly, I will build my church. And so what we are seeing here in terms of if we go to our news feed and we begin to look at the headlines and we begin to reflect back on the last two years and we think of all the things that have happened and all the things that are in our newspapers and, and in our news feeds, you know, in all the places that we get our news, we see all the things that the world says, this is what's going on in the world. But if we could just imagine for a moment that if there was a newspaper or a news feed in heaven, that, those would be the small little articles down at the very bottom. But what would be at the very top of there is I've moved this person over to here so they can hear the gospel in order they can become like Jesus Christ. I've moved this person over here. I've done this with the church over here. I've done so all of these things. He moves all of the headlines we're reading. These are the sub stories to the story, and that is the story that God's king. He is building His kingdom through the church. We worry about the church of China. God's doing a work there. Uh, God gave us COVID not because well, I don't know why. You know, God gave us COVID. I don't know what the big headline is for COVID. I do know uh, in, in terms of uh, you know there's so many of them, but in terms of heaven, uh, God used COVID to do all kinds of a, a thousand. Uh, th this is underestimating a, a million different things God has done through COVID to build His church. Okay. So that's what it seems to be saying here. When we're coming to look and behold the sun, we need to recognize he today is reigning and he is doing a work. And while we do not see the headlines that are there in heaven, he is doing an amazing number of things through with the headlines that we're seeing, uh, we're seeing in our newspapers. So we've got to kind of keep that in, in our mind here. So you, you guys have heard of the, the butterfly effect. I think I put that down there, right? The butterfly effect. You've heard of that before? There's, I think there's a movie even that was about it. The butterfly effect. The butterfly effect is the theory that a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil may cause a tornado in Oklahoma because of a thousand unknown links working in a causal chain. And this is a real theory, okay? So this is a, this is a, a theory of why things, how things work. Well, Christ finds great joy in exerting his kingship through the reverse butterfly effect. We see this all through scripture where God has his eye on the individual out of the millions or billions that live in the world and he moves that one individual through a decision of a ruler or through an impersonal force like a natural disaster or a pandemic. He has fun. He has fun doing this. Um, this reverse butterfly effect working within our, working within, uh, our world. So that, we need to keep that in mind as we're, we're seeing what's going on out there. We know God's doing a great thing. He is the one who is the Savior and Lord and King over all things right now. So we have a great Savior and Lord, and we want to honor him as we study who the Son is in relationship to the Father and in relationship to the Son. So number one here, the Son in relationship to the Father, letter A, the Son is under the headship or authority of the Father. The Son is is under the headship 
under the headship or authority of the Father. So some of this is going to be repeat from the first one, obviously, because we're talking about relationships here. The Son is under the headship or authority of the Father. So Luke 11.3, very simple. Did I say Luke? First Corinthians. <laughs> oh, goodness. It's not even close to Luke. First Corinthians 11.3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, where Paul is going in, here in 1 Corinthians 11, of 1 Corinthians is, um, is the importance of, the, of women acknowledging the headship of men in the church, but he prefaces this discussion by describing the authority and submission in human relationships, that that is a reflection of the authority and submission that exists in the eternal Godhead. So God the Father is the head of Christ. So a word often used um, by early theologians for the evident authority structure of the father-son relationship is the Greek word taxis. T-A-X-I-S would be how we would kind of put it in our English wording. T-A-X-I-S, taxis, which means ordering, ordering. There is a ordering within the Godhead, a built-in structure of authority and submission that distinguishes the persons of the Godhead from one another. So for all eternity, the order establishes that God the Father is the head of Christ. Now remember, that has nothing to do with his essence or competency, they are equally competent and they are equally God in nature. And so they're perfectly competent. So this has nothing to do with essence, essence or competency. So we see this order and thus authority and submission in, first of all, number one, the son's submission to the father during his incarnation, during his incarnation. And again, we've looked at some other passage, but we'll continue to do so. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, 28 through 32. John eight thirty two. So Jesus said to them, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Now, how amazing is this? Jesus, who is God, obeys God, according to verse 28. I do nothing on my own authority. Secondly, look at the level of his submission, verse 29. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. There was never a time he stepped outside of the Father's will. The level of Jesus' submission is complete, it's comprehensive, it's all-inclusive and absolute. But now note this, following these statements of absolute obedience to the Father, never going off the script, he has the audacity, or so it would seem to appear, to instruct on the subject of 
freedom. Look at, look at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So true freedom is living as Jesus lived, for he's the freest human being that ever lived. In fact, he's the only fully free human being who's ever lived. Now, typically when people think of freedom, they think freedom is to do whatever I want to do, you know, whatever I want to do. But here, he's showing us that no, freedom is not doing whatever I want to, but rather freedom is doing what I ought to. So if you want to be truly free in in the order how God has ordered things is, you do what you ought to be doing and we define what we ought to be doing by the Father's will. So freedom is submitting fully to the will of the Father, to the words of the Father, and to the work that the Father calls us to do. If that's, that's what it means to be free. It runs so contrary to the way we think, right? We think that if I only had the, if I could just do what I want to do, then I would really be free. And he said, no, that's not true. Jesus realized that is not true. What is going to bring true freedom to you is, when he said to himself, what's going to bring true freedom to me is if I always do the will of my Father. So submitting to the will of the Father, submitting to this authority actually produces freedom. But there is an important question here. Did did the son submit to the father before the incarnation? Did he do this before? If he did, then this indicates that the authority and submission are eternal realities, and thus his creation should reflect those realities. So number two there, the son's submission, the son's submission to the father in eternity past. So you just got to write in the word in eternity, in eternity past. The son's submission to the father in eternity past. And what we see, we see that in 1 Peter. So turn your Bibles now to 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, verses 18 through 21. I mean, if, if you leave here and there's no gold, you get out of, get out of t- today, the one piece of gold I'd like you to take home is that one there, which is if you really want to f- live freely, just obey the Father, you know? Just obey the Father. You'll be freer than anybody else around you. That's just amazing. Okay. So, so we're, now, we're now here at uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. And the question is, is the Son's submission to the Father in eternity past, uh, in the past? And I think this is one of the clearest, clearest places that we have it. Uh, know this, that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as the silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown. That is, God placed his, 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 um, his knowledge upon him. It's not just, you know, anyway, we'll just go with that. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But has been made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So before the foundation of the world, Jesus 
was already knew that he would be the precious, he would be giving his precious blood like a lamb without blemish or spot. So if you can think of it within the context of this, this community, so community seems to be important. Community within the Trinity, in, the, in eternity past, the community of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it was there, if you, I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll work it within our little tiny brains. Uh, it, there was a council. They, they decided, they had a council. They said, how can, what, what, what's the story here? And the Father said, well, here's how I want the story to work out. Son, you'll be this. Spirit, you'll be this. Son, you'll be the one who's going to go and you're going to die on the cross for these people. Spirit, you're going to apply that to people around the world uh, throughout, throughout eternity. So there's this, there's this conversation that's going on in eternity past of who the Son is going to be. And so the Son is submitting to the Father to, uh, to, that, uh, to that story. So that Jesus was able to say in John chapter 6, verse 38, he says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So the submission of the Son in incarnation is but a reflection of the eternal relationship that has always been true with the Father. So, if we've looked at his incarnation and an eternity past, it will not surprise you that we need to consider the trifecta. The Son's submission to the Father in eternity future. Eternity future. And we already looked at that, 1 Corinthians 15, 28. So let me just read that for you. And you will, you will remember from the last session. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, the Son, that God may be all and all. And so what we find is, as we open, we, we get the, the curtains opened up for us for a moment into eternity future, and it's in Revelation chapter 5, verse 13. And we're going to look at it in the next session a little bit closer, but I just want to kind of tell you what's happening there. The Father, he's sitting on the throne, and the Lamb is taking a scroll from the right hand of, of the Father who's on the throne, and yet both are receiving worship. So it's a picture of a future worship in the ages to come where the Son is shown to be under the authority of the Father, for the Father is the one who is giving him the scroll to open, while he is equal with the Father, for they're all worshiping both the Father and the Son there around that throne. So that's what we kind of see there in eternity future. So the Son is under the headship of the authority of the Father. Now, he relates to the Father in another way. Um, and it's letter B in your, your handout there, letter B. Wait a minute. Is it letter B? Did I get that right? Oh, yeah, there it is. Woo. Turn the page too quickly. The son is in a loving relationship with the father. So that's the word you want to put in there, loving. The son is in a loving relationship with the Father. Now, what in the world is the connection between these two ways that the Father and the Son relate? Why would I have to say that, in other words? Well, some might say that if the first theme is true, the Son is under the headship of the Father, then the second cannot be true. If the first is true, then the second can be true, cannot be true. 
That is, if the relationship between the Father and the Son is marked by eternal authority and submission, then this precludes any real and genuine love between the two. Well, if this is our intuition, then our intuition has failed us. Because John 14, 31. So turn in your Bibles to John 14, 31. Where we read this. And so now when we're talking about inscrutable, this is where our reason fails us because in our relationships that we have here on earth, all been broken by the fall, it's hard for us to imagine being in a position of submission and being truly able to love this person who is over me in, in terms of authority. We, it doesn't fit very well within our framework of the of way authority has been uh, worked out in our lives. So we have to have God's word, the revealed truth, to help us understand inscrutable truth. So John 14, 31 says this, I do as the Father has commanded me. So here's a great expression of his submission to the Father's will. I do as the Father has commanded me so that, so that the world may know that I love the Father. So they're going hand in hand. He says, my submission to the Father, doing what the Father commands me, actually reveals something, and that reveals my great love for the Father. That the world may know that I love, that I love the Father. Submission is inseparable with the Son's love of the Father. But what about the Father? Does he love the Son? Well, Thank you, John 15, verse 9. Only one chapter over, John 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. It can't be any clearer. The whole way that the father shows the love for his son is that the father gives the son commandments. And the way that the son enjoys the love of the father is to obey the commandments. So that Jesus says, now, if you want to enjoy my love, then you're going to want to obey me because my commandments come out of a love for you. So authority demonstrates love by giving loving commandments, giving commandments that will fit for the person who is, who's receiving those commandments, fit for the role that the father and the son has for those, those individuals. That's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. Uh, um, so how has, uh, how, uh, well, I've answered it for you. Shoot. <laughs> How has the son, here's my question for you, how has the son again implied love the disciples? And how do the disciples of Jesus Christ abide in his love? I want this to be an interactive time. Obey. Yeah. So the son gave the disciples commands and they abide in his love by keeping those commands and the son's love for the, the disciples, us, is by giving us commands. And that's exactly what happened within the, this, this framework of this relationship between the father and the son. Now, this is important because there is an egalitarian movement that says that the only true love can happen when there is equality, not only in essence, but also in function. 
okay? So this is, this is important, actually, um, that authority and submission are contrary to real love. But in fact, Jesus tells us that just the opposite is, is the case. The structure of authority and submission, a command and obedience, is necessary for true love to exist. And I know that, is, that does kind of throw our brains a little bit because we live in a fallen world. But he's very clear here that this is the way that love works. There's commands and there's obedience and that's how we end up loving one another as we work that out. Um, so the son is in a loving relationship with the father. Any questions on that? Any, any thoughts as you're kind of wrestling with that? Any concerns? Any comments? Yes, sir. Yep. Okay. Yeah. He's easier to swallow. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's easier to swallow, right? When we know that it's coming to us because he loves us. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, is a way to express our love to the Father is by, or to the Son is by obeying the, the commands of the Son. And, and this is where as we are, you know, as we're getting into people's stories and we're wondering what their struggle is. It, my big struggle is in terms of my own story is, is God really good? Many times my, my disobedience is because I do not believe the very thing that you just said, and that is I do not believe that God is good. And because I don't believe he's good, I, the thing that he's asking me to do runs contrary to what I want to do. And because I don't think he's good, I think I know what's good. I'm going, oh boy, that sounds like I just ate the fruit again. I will define what is good and evil, right? And so I eat that fruit uh, because I don't believe the one who gave me the command is good. And so I, that's the big part of my struggle and my own disobedience is that issue. But if we can get, you know, people compressed into my life and tell me, you know, what does God's word have to say? Then that helps my obedience. Yeah. Good. Okay. Right, where are we at? Uh, we are now at, um, we've turned the page. Oh, the son in relationship to the, to the spirit. Here we go. The son in relationship to the, to the spirit. Well, there are two themes here that I think are instructive. The first theme is this. Jesus submits to the spirit Isn't this crazy? I mean, this is going to be really crazy here. Jesus submits to the Spirit to fulfill his role as the Spirit-anointed Messiah. So Jesus lived his life as an authentic human being in the same way that we can only live our lives as authentic human beings, and that is in submission to the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we have to go back to, let's just go back to Isaiah chapter 11 for a minute here. Isaiah chapter 11. And verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. 
And the spirit of the Lord, or the spirit of Yahweh, shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall judge by what his eyes see or, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. And he, go, he goes on. So, so why was the spirit necessary to rest on him? What, what could the spirit of God add to the divine nature of the Son? Well, nothing, right? The Spirit is not going to be adding anything to the Son in terms of his divine nature. Because in his divine nature, in every way, he is infinite and eternal in his perfections. But in humility, Jesus set aside his divine rights and privileges and submitted to the Spirit of God so that by the Spirit he learned. Look what he had to, he had to learn this. He had to learn, uh, verse 2, spirit, wisdom and understanding. He had to learn counsel and might. He had to learn the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. See, remember, Jesus is living an authentic human life. He had to learn all these things, and the only way you can learn all those things is if the Holy Spirit is upon you, is the Holy Spirit is teaching you those things. And so the Son submits in such a way, being fully God, as a man, he chose to rely not on his divine nature, he set aside those rights, but on the power of the Holy Spirit. So that if you remember, um, uh, early in his public ministry, he entered into the synagogue of his hometown of Nazareth. And they, uh, by the way, if you've seen The Chosen, this is, this is part of The Chosen. Um, he entered into the synagogue of his hometown of Nazareth, and they asked him to read scripture for them. And if you remember there in The Chosen, he's, kind of, he's got these scrolls in front of him, and he's like, oh, one of the disciples is there. Which one are you going to choose? Um, and so he asked him to read scripture for them, and it says he found the place where it was written... Okay, so he purposefully, he purposely turned to a specific passage and he read it and it reads like this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he, speaking of the father, has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the leer of the Lord's favor. So he picks that passage because he knows that, it, that it's crucial to Jesus to be spirit-anointed. He selects that knowing that if he doesn't have the spirit, he is not going to be able to do those things, to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty uh, to the captives and recover their sight, um, to proclaim the year of the Lord. So as a man, Jesus fully submitted to the spirit, even though in terms of rank, Within the Trinity, Jesus has authority over the Spirit <laughs> for the sake of his mission. He humbled himself. Oh. That's isn't that something? I mean, that's just that's something. Um, it's helpful for us. So Jesus submits to the Spirit to fulfill his role as a Spirit-anointed Messiah. And the second way Jesus relates to the Spirit is letter B there. Um, Jesus has authority over the Spirit in his role as the Son. <laughs> Jesus has authority over the Spirit in his role as the Son. So we see that then in John chapter 16. John chapter 16. And we look at verses 12 through 14. See, it's here where Jesus makes clear that although he submitted to the Spirit in his life as the incarnate Son, so he's, 
still in submission to the Holy Spirit, <laughs> um, he makes clear that the Spirit is going to be submitting to, is submitting to him. So verse, six, uh, verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are, come, that are to come. He will glorify me, the son says, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So he'll speak on the authority of the son. And we know this because Jesus says there at the end, he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. So the possession of truth is the sons in which the Spirit will declare. So that in parallel uh, fashion, in, uh, that Jesus prayed to the Father, John 17, 4, he says, I glorified you, Father, I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So here, the Spirit will glorify the Son, not speaking out of his own authority, but the Son's authority, speaking what the Son tells him. Okay, so applications, applications. So what can we apply here in terms of son's relationship to the father and to the spirit? How can we be better leaders? Well, number one, it is just as godlike to submit gladly, to submit gladly to rightful authority as it is godlike to exercise legitimate authority. It is just as godlike to submit to rightful authority as it is God-like to exercise legitimate authority. As I was thinking about this, recognizing that we are people of the fall where we rejected God's rightful authority to go our own way, our natural propensity is to reject authority. I think it's pretty fair to say that in the relationship that I have with those who have authority over me, I'm going to probably most likely lean into struggling to submit to that authority. It's just my lean as a fallen human being. Number two, exercising authority does not preclude the wisdom to submit to those who are under our authority. So exercising authority does not preclude the wisdom to submit to those who are under our authority. Huh. So there was a time when the son submitted to the authority of the, of the spirits to accomplish the, the vision or accomplish. In other words, there was, he recognized that the spirit had what he didn't have, and so he needed to employ the spirit in order for him to fulfill the mission that the father had given to him. So it seems to be that there are times when we should acknowledge that those in whom we are leading, they may be better equipped in certain areas, and we should probably give them some authority in that area. And when they say, you know, we should probably do this, it's probably a good idea that we do that, right? So I think that's what's going, that's what's going on here. 
Now, however, number three, (laughs) when leaders submit to those who are under their authority, they are still ultimately responsible. They are still ultimately responsible. So I can't give, I can't give my authority over to someone else because I see in them the capability to probably do what I'm not capable of. I can't give that authority to them. And if they make a bad decision that I follow because I said, I'm going to follow what you say, and it's a bad decision for, let's say, the company or for my, my team, ultimately that responsibility is back on me. So we know Harry Truman. Okay, you know at least he's the president. He's the one who said the buck stops here. And so he recognized there's all kinds of people who are making decisions on his behalf. But ultimately what he was saying by that is he was saying that if they've made a bad decision, the buck stops here. I'm the one who's ultimately responsible. Now this is, um, this is where we kind of kind of tease out the fact that there is, there's guilt that's different than responsibility. So I may be 100% responsible. So I would say that if you're ahead, you are 100 responsibility for whatever you are ahead of but that there might be guilt that might be one to be parred out in our fallen world. And so it may be, let's say in a, a company situation, it may be a case where um, they should have known better. They didn't do their job very well. They may, you know, they may be 75% responsible, or sorry, 75% guilty for the decision that was made because they didn't do a very good job. And I'm only about 25% re- guilty, uh, but I'm still 100% responsible. Um, and that's, we struggle with that because we want justice and we want to, you know, we, when, we put, when we throw people under the bus, that's what we're doing, right? <laughs> if we're a person who's in authority. If we throw somebody else in the bus, what we tend to do is we tend to fail to understand that we're 100% responsible. And while they may be guilty to some level, ultimately I'm responsible for whatever guilt that they will. I'm ultimately responsible for their decision, even though I gave that over to them in terms of my authority. Does that make sense? This is, uh, for, for me as a pastor, working with couples who are going through struggles, I have to look to the husband and say, husband, you are the head. You are 100% responsible for this marriage. And they look at me and go, oh, no, no, she's, and she, he tells me all the reasons why things are not going well. <laughs> so all he's trying to figure out is who's, what, how much guilt do I have, right? Now, the beauty of it is the cross covers all guilt. So if I'm 75% guilty, the cross will cover all of that guilt. So I can, as 100% responsible for my marriage, I can still, that gives me the freedom to repent and say, you know what, I'm 75% guilty here. And my wife would say, yeah, I'm probably about 25%. And the cross covers both. So that gives us the freedom of us who are responsible, that gives us the freedom to be able to say, it's on me. I'm 100% responsible. Christ has paid for that guilt, and I will take the responsibility, the 100% responsibility, because Christ ultimately paid for the guilt in in that relationship. We don't think in those terms so often. We're we're all trying to figure out how we can self-justify. But Jesus Christ justified us if we're in Christ. And so it it gives us the freedom then to be able to, to acknowledge our guilt in whatever context that we are in. And so if your identity is in Christ, even when you're dealing with unbelievers, you can have the freedom to be able to say, hey, you know what, boss? I, I was, you know, I was, I was guilty. I didn't do what you told me to do, you know, to whatever level. And be able to freely say that and not have to push somebody else under the bus, just simply be, take our part of the guilt. And we can do that because we know that we are completely, wholly, fully forgiven for our bad part in that. Um, so that's the, that's the beauty of the cross for us. 
All right, enough of that. Um, number four, unity and harmony among our differing roles is maintained by staying on mission. Unity and harmony among our differing roles is, stay, is maintained by staying on mission. So each person of the Trinity understands their mission, understands the mission, and the role that they play in that mission. So that there's perfect harmony of their leading and submitting according to their roles. And so you begin to kind of just look at the dance that was going on between the, 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 the persons of the, of the Trinity. And there's just this dance going on and they're moving back and forth in terms of the role and the relationships that they have with one another. Because they all understood the mission. The glory of God. And how that was going to work itself out in terms of redemption. So whatever context we find ourselves at home, at work, at church, at MC, wherever, keeping that mission before us will aid us in being unified and harmonious in the playing out of our differing, differing roles. So this goes back to, uh, Jake, what you had said earlier, and that is how important it is that we, we use our creativity uh, c- capabilities and we say, what, what do I imagine is the future going to look like for my family or my, 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 my marriage or my children or something of that nature? And we keep that mission in front of us and we try to communicate that as much as we possibly can to the those people who are part of that mission so that we all know the role that we're to be playing in order to accomplish that, that end, end game. So that's, that's, that's our role as, as leaders. All right, number five. Number five, marvel at the extraordinary love of the Son of the Father and the Father for the Son. Marvel at the extraordinary love of the, of, of the Son of the Father and the Father for the Son. And I only say that because in Philippians 2.8, we are reminded of the extent of the Son's love for the Father when we read, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He loved the Father so much, he was willing to do that. Philippians 2.8. The severity of the Father's will, in other words, was not enough to deter Christ from demonstrating his love through obedience. And so it is out of this marvel, number six, grow in our love of those in authority and demonstrate that love by submitting to their leadership. Grow in our love of those in authority and demonstrate that love by submitting to their leadership. The more we can know and love those who are in authority, the easier it will be to submit to that authority. And probably number seven, I should put, maybe, we, maybe I did on the next one, I don't remember. But probably number seven is, as those who are in positions of authority, I want to make that submission as easy as possible. So if I'm in authority, I want my wife, I am, um, I'm the head of my wife, I want her submission to my leadership to be easy. So I am listening, well, I'm trying to listen. I'm listening, I'm trying to be a a student of my wife as we go through different periods of seasons of life. What does my wife need now? The better I'm a student of her, the better I love her, which is what she needs, the more easier it's going to be for her to submit to me. And so again, as I go back to these relationships in terms of, you know, husband and wife, many times I find the husband has not done a very good job of making it easy. Thank you.